You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Sarah Payne. Payne was born on the 13th of October, 1991. She was a lovely, easy baby, and a fun child to be around. Her parents, Michael and Sarah, met while they were both in school, and they started dating. They fell in love and quickly started a family. They had two sons, and then daughter Sarah, followed by little sister Charlotte, all within a few years. They both came from working-class backgrounds, but as a family, they always got by and had a good support system from their own families. Sarah worked in pubs mainly, and Mike had initially worked in off-licenses like his parents had done, but started exhibiting signs of mental health problems, and was eventually diagnosed with manic depression. But despite these problems, the Paynes had a very busy family life, and eventually, after many moves, settled in a three-bedroom council house in Arch Road in Hersham. They'd moved about a lot while Mike was managing off-licenses, but they'd moved back to Walton, the town that they were from, when he began having health difficulties in order to be closer to family and support. He began working nights, first at a petrol station and then as a paint sprayer in a factory. Their house was messy and lively and full of laughter. A lot of the laughter was from Sarah. She was a very girly girl and loved frilly dresses and makeup. She was very sensitive and in touch with her emotions. Sarah loved make-believe, magic, fairies, and rainbows. She loved school and would cry at the summer holidays. She was chosen by the school in her final year in primary to be a so-called befriender, an older kid who would look out for others who were having a tough time or found themselves with no one to play with or were feeling sad and lonely. She was affectionate, always full of hugs and kisses, and confident and outgoing, but she loved most of all being at home with her family. The family often visited Mike's parents, Terry and Leslie, after their move to Arch Road. They had actually been living in his parents' house when they first moved back to Walton, while Terry and Les lived nearer to the shop that they managed. But the grandparents sold up and moved to the south coast when they decided to retire. On Saturday the 1st of July 2000, It was a glorious summer's day. The family decided to head out to Mike's parents just as soon as Sarah had finished work. She was employed at the time in a local pub in Walton, and they helped out before opening, and once their mum was busy with work, they played in the garden and had chips for lunch. They'd often go to work with their mother, and it was a treat for the then eight- and five-year-olds. Mike had come home from his night shift that morning and headed straight to bed, promising Sarah before she left that he and the two older boys would get things ready for when Sarah and the girls would be back so they could get on the road quickly. But the boys, of course, had not gotten the house in order by the time the girls got home, and this delayed them getting into the car. But soon their seven-seater Renault was packed up and they arrived in East Preston at about half-past five. 
The drive had been a little tense, given that Sarah was annoyed that the boys hadn't been pulling their weight. Terry and Les lived on a private estate in an area called Kingston Gorse, which was decidedly rural, despite being so near to the coastal towns. There were fields where vegetables grew, which were just minutes from the expansive stretches of beach on England's southern coastline. It was picturesque and peaceful, and definitely the sort of place you'd want to visit with a handful of kids on a sunny summer evening. The family were welcomed into the house, and little Sarah went about trying to break the tension that had built up from the car. She gave everyone little notes saying how much she loved them, and proceeded to eat all of her dinner, despite the fact that it was shepherd's pie, and she didn't like it. She wanted everyone to be happy again, and over the next hour or so, with her help, the family relaxed. After dinner, Terry asked Sarah and Mike if they'd like to go for a walk. One of his friends was doing up a house nearby, and he wanted to show them how well the work was coming along. The kids wanted to go too, jumping at the chance to get out of the house. Les decided to stay behind to have a rest after making dinner and tidying up, and settled down in front of the television with a glass of wine while the others left the house. So they all set off. When they reached the beach, they let the kids run off to play in the sand for a while, but when their parents called them back to continue on their walk, the kids protested. The older boys wanted to stay. That was no problem for the boys, but when Sarah told her girls that they were too young to play on the beach on their own, there were more protests. Sarah was only eight, and Charlotte just five. The two girls begged to be allowed to stay on the beach, and then their big brothers said that they'd look after them. Lee and Luke, then 11 and 12, assured their parents that they'd keep their eyes on them, and that their parents needn't worry. And so, reluctantly, Sarah and Mike agreed. They'd have to let them play by themselves eventually, and the beach was nearly empty. The two older boys would look after them. It was still bright outside, and there were four of them. So the couple and Terry set off, telling the kids that Luke was in charge, that if they got fed up, they were to return to Nanny's house, and that they were to be home by dark. Sarah had that uneasy feeling, every parent does, when you give that extra bit of independence to your kids that you haven't before. But they continued on to look at the house, and popped into the pub for a drink after. On their way home, they called into the off-license to pick up a few bottles of beer and some wine for that evening. They walked back to Terry and Les's house through the fields. But Sarah knew something was wrong when she saw her mother-in-law standing out in the field behind the house, waiting for them with little Charlotte by her side. As she increased her pace, Les called out to them, Have you got Sarah? But, of course, they didn't. Little Sarah had gone missing. After the kids were done playing on the beach, they'd headed back towards the house but they'd gone into what they called the potato field behind their grandparents' house, named because that's what Terry and Les had used to grow out there. They played hide-and-seek, and everything was fine, but after a while, Sarah had fallen and hurt herself. She was a sensitive kid and decided that she'd had enough at that point. She wanted to head home. The gate that they usually used to come and go had been padlocked, though, and so she ran down towards the lane. Luke went after her to see her home, but then little Charlotte fell too, this time straight into stinging nettles. 
so Luke turned to her and Lee went after Sarah. As he ran after her, he looked back to check on Luke and Charlotte, and then when he turned back to chase Sarah, she had disappeared. Lee had continued down onto the lane, thinking he'd find Sarah there, and when that didn't happen, he continued on to the house. He searched every room there, thinking that Sarah may be playing a trick on him and hiding, but she wasn't there either. After the search of the house turned up nothing, Lee went to his grandmother and told her what had happened. It was the middle of summer, and the area around Les and Terry's home was lush with growth. It made searching for the missing girl all the more difficult as the adults searched the hedgerows and the tall crops in the nearby fields. The area also had a number of streams, and then, of course, there was the nearby beach. Anything could have happened. Sarah's mind initially flashed with images of her daughter injured somewhere, unable to move. They searched the house again, and then again, and called Sarah's name as they pushed their way through the adjacent cornfields. When there was still no sign of Sarah, her parents decided to head into the nearby village. On the off chance she decided to go there, although that would be totally unlike her. It was getting dark at that stage, and Sarah wasn't fond of nighttime. She'd be frightened being alone in the dark. To get their car out, they'd had to ask neighbours who were having a party to have their guests move their cars, and at that point the neighbours decided to end the party and help search for Sarah. Terry and Sarah got into the car and began driving. When they reached the village, they stopped people as they saw them, asking if they'd seen a little girl, eight, with blonde hair. People wanted to help, but no one had seen her. When Sarah and Terry got back to the house, there was still no sign of Sarah, so they rang the police. She'd been missing for nearly two hours, and police arrived within ten minutes of the 999 call. Police searches for the girl immediately began, with police out in fields and in the house, and a helicopter fitted with infrared searchlights was brought in. All the houses on the estate were searched in case Sarah was hiding somewhere else. They also spoke to Sarah's siblings. They each went over what had happened that evening, that Sarah had run off and seemed to have just disappeared. Police were especially interested in speaking with Lee, who had been the last to see his sister as he chased after her across the field. They asked him if he'd seen anything unusual, or if there'd been anyone else in the lane that night that might have seen where Sarah had run off to. Lee had said that the area had been quiet, all except for a white van he'd seen in Peak Lane. He'd caught a look at the driver and had remembered him because he'd smiled and waved at Lee as he looked for his sister. The guy he said was white, kind of scruffy looking, and had strange gappy teeth. But that was it, there'd been no one else, and there was still no sign of Sarah. Because Lee was the only real witness to the sudden disappearance of his younger sister, police asked that he not be questioned about what had happened or what he had seen by the rest of the family, so as to make sure his recollection wasn't influenced by later conversations. Lee would spend the following days trying to cope with the guilt and anger and responsibility he felt for whatever had befallen Sarah. The searches for Sarah continued until 1am, when they were suspended for the night. Police sent the Payne family home to get some rest. They put the kids to sleep in the room that they all shared when visiting Mike's parents, 
but the adults sat downstairs together, unable to sleep. They left the front door of the house open, in case Sarah was to return. Her mum wanted her to know that they'd been out looking for her, and that they were waiting for her to come back. Before the sun was even up, Sarah left the house and went searching yet again in the adjacent fields for her daughter. She called out Sarah's name over and over, but eventually collapsed in tears. She sat there racked with sobs until the police arrived and found her there. They brought her back to the house and gave her some tea, before introducing them to their family liaison officers, or FLOs, Dave Dowell and Sean Scott. These two officers would be the ones to keep the Payne family up to date with what was going on in the search, and would be available for the family to ask questions and so on. Shortly after, the police assembled nearby. Around 150 officers would take part in a thorough search of the area. They were matched in numbers by members of the public who had come to help. The family were asked to stay in the house and wait. And so they did. They waited as people formed lines and slowly and methodically crossed the fields, looking for any sign of Sarah. The helicopter with infrared was out yet again, and a tracker dog was brought in to see if it could pick up Sarah's scent in the field or in the lane. But there was no sign of her. The search went on that day for a full twelve hours, and no evidence of where Sarah had been or where she was was found. The next morning, Monday, the FLOs called to the house to ask Sarah and Mike if they would be willing to make a public appeal. The search was ongoing, but if they could go on television and ask for the public's help, it might bring in some leads. And so later that day, the couple headed to Littlehampton Police Station to face the cameras. But before they began the press conference, the senior investigating officer, Alan Ladley, sat them down and broke the news that police had in fact arrested someone the night before. Sarah and Mike asked who the person was, and they were told only that it was a man who had been in the area at the time Sarah disappeared. The police said that they couldn't give any more details to them for operational reasons. All they could say was that someone was in custody and was being questioned. Then Sarah's stricken parents, who hadn't slept or washed in days and who'd barely eaten, sat in front of cameras. Sarah told the gathered press that Sarah was their little princess, that her siblings missed her dearly, and that she was a soft, gentle girl. She then appealed for anyone with any information, anything at all, to come forward. Maybe it was just that they saw a little girl alone that day. Even then, ring the police. The day after that, the family liaison officers arrived back at the house with more news about the man that had been questioned. They had something that they needed to tell Mike and Sarah before they heard it in the press. The man that they'd picked up was a convicted sex offender. He'd abducted a nine-year-old girl who he'd assaulted before letting go a number of years before. Nothing was certain, but if this was in fact the person responsible for Sarah's disappearance, then there was hope that Sarah was still out there somewhere. He'd let the other girl go, after all. The police investigation had come across this man's name when they carried out a fairly standard list-making procedure, 
a senior police officer had pulled together the names of 12 men in the general area who had convictions for sex offences, while door-knocking and field searches were ongoing to try and locate Sarah. At the top of the list that was drawn up was the name Roy Whiting. This was the man that was being questioned. He had been convicted of kidnap and sexual assault in 1994. In that attack, the little girl had been walking home with two other girls when Whiting had pulled up in his red Fiat and threatened them all with a knife. He'd grabbed for the girls and two struggled free, but Whiting had managed to throw the nine-year-old into his car. Then he'd driven to an isolated place and assaulted her. After that, he dumped her on the side of the road, alone, just a short distance from her home to fend for herself. The girl gave police her abductor's description, and police tracked him down. Whiting was given a four-year sentence for that attack after a psychologist gave evidence that Whiting was not actually a paedophile, but had simply snapped. Whiting entered prison with a promise that he would undergo therapy, but he never did, not wanting to brand himself a paedophile while he was inside. Because of that, he served just an extra seven months and he was back on the streets in just over two years. After that, he underwent supervision for just four months. This story struck police as very similar to the possible scenario that they were looking at with Sarah Payne. She was around the same age, and her brother had described seeing a white van in the area. Whiting owned a white Fiat Ducato van at the time. Quickly, police had called around to his dingy flat to find out what he'd been up to when Sarah had gone missing. He told them that he'd driven aimlessly around the coastal area that Saturday night, ending up in Hove at a fun fair. He said he'd gotten home at about eight, just after the abduction had taken place, and that he'd gone to bed at nine. Of course, he lived alone, and there was no way for him to verify this. Police asked him what he'd been wearing that day, and he said a white shirt, which he'd left in the van. What struck police most, alongside the very flimsy account of his whereabouts at the time of the crime, was the lack of concern shown by Whiting about the missing girl. On top of that, he seemed edgy and agitated. His manner was off, and so they decided to keep an eye on him in the flat. After they'd left, though, not realising that he was under surveillance, he was seen going out to his van, which was parked around the corner from the flat. He'd bought the van just days before Sarah went missing, and was seen by police bringing what looked to be a bundle of clothing or something into the flat. A frantic call was made to the detective sergeant, and senior officers arrived back at the location as Whiting was sitting in the front of his van, about to drive off. There was no way they'd be able to mount a full-time surveillance for Whiting, and so it was decided that they'd bring him in for questioning, search his flat, and seize his van. He was asked to present the clothing he'd worn that Saturday, and he handed over a black t-shirt and another white one, which had obviously been recently washed, or perhaps purchased. While being held in Bogner Regis police station, Whiting responded simply no comment to each question put to him. Meanwhile, 433 items were collected from the flat, and 302 more from his van. There were suspicious and ominous items found particularly in the van. Zip ties, configured in a way that looked like handcuffs, a knife, a shovel, 
and a bottle of baby oil. The van had originally been lined with plywood on its floors, walls and doors, but all of that was missing. Every single mark in the back of the van was recorded and swabbed for forensics to go through. 500 items were submitted for forensic examination. Whiting was held for three days and questioned for a total of four hours, but ultimately in that time no concrete evidence was found implicating Whiting, although there were some damning finds that would seem to indicate that he had been up to no good and possibly involved. But it wasn't enough, and so Whiting was released. But the search continued on. The fields were combed over and over again, and anything that was found in them was bagged as possible evidence and presented to the panes to see if it was in fact something of Sarah's. There were a number of items of children's clothing in the nearby fields, but nothing was identified as the missing girls. The panes began each morning that week with press conferences, appealing for information, and a reconstruction was staged for the Crime Watch program. This resulted in over 800 calls in relation to the case to the local police. There were a number of sightings of Sarah called in also. A woman came forward and said that the day Sarah had gone missing, she'd seen a little girl crying in the ladies' toilets in Knutsford Services on the M6, a location well north, closer to Manchester or Liverpool, and a drive of over four hours away. The woman had asked her her name, and the little girl had responded that it was Sarah. But with that, Sarah was sure that this wasn't her girl. Sarah always gave her full name, Sarah Payne, a habit she'd picked up in play school when she was one of three Sarahs in a class. Police asked the family that week if any of them knew a man by the name of Roy Whiting. They wanted to know if Sarah or any of the rest of the family may have had contact with him at any stage. They also confirmed to the family that he was the man who had been in custody. But none of the pains knew him. But as the searches continued, despite the fact there'd been no indication of where Sarah was or what might have happened to her, police seemed hopeful that she might still be returned home alive. They asked Mr. and Mrs. Payne to get a go-bag of sorts ready, should Sarah turn up. If and when she did, her clothing would likely need to be taken from her for evidence, and so she'd need some new things. Sarah went out and filled the bag with new clothing that she thought Sarah would like. As the first week turned into the second, Sarah and Mike appeared on television yet again. Police, particularly the family liaison officers, tried to keep the kids busy while their parents waited in their house for any news of Sarah. They were brought out for burgers or for spins in the car. The boys were taken up in a police helicopter and they were given a tour of the incident room set up in the station to show them that police were working hard to find their sister. Sarah's parents would only venture out one at a time, making sure that Mike or Sarah were at the house just in case any news came, or Sarah came back. 
And so, on Monday the 17th of July, two and a half weeks after Sarah's disappearance, Sean, one of the FLOs, knocked on the door of Terry and Les's house, where the Paines had decided to stay until Sarah was found. Sarah and Les were in the house with the kids, Mike and his father having gone shopping in a nearby town. When Sarah opened the door to him, his face looked set and grim. He said he needed to speak with her and Mike, alone. But Sarah refused to have any news given to her until Mike arrived, saying it wasn't fair she should get news about anything before him. Sean was insistent. He needed to talk to them urgently, and so Les called the men on their mobiles and summoned them home. When they were all sat together, Sean again asked to speak to the parents on their own, but Sarah said that Terry and Les could stay. They all sat down in the back garden and gripped each other's hands, awaiting this urgent news. It was clear that Mike had been crying in the car on his way home. They all braced themselves. And then the police officer broke the news that the body of a girl had been found in Pulborough. 20 kilometres or 15 miles north of Kingston Gorse. He couldn't confirm at that time that it was in fact Sarah, but police thought it was likely. She was the only missing girl in the area. Sarah broke down and then her husband and quickly all four adults around the table in the back garden were sobbing and crying out. Then the kids came out. They'd been watching TV in the sitting room and had caught the breaking news. When they rushed into the back garden and saw the state of their parents and grandparents, they too burst into tears. Lee and Charlotte fell into a puddle with their mother crying, and then Luke bolted from sight. Sarah rushed to follow him and managed to grab hold of him in the front drive, both of them breaking down once more. Meanwhile, Mike went for a walk. He needed to be on his own to process this awful news. Sean told the family that they were awaiting a formal identification through either DNA or dental records. When Sarah said that she'd go to view the body, she was gently told that the body had lain where it was for some time, and it wasn't in the best of conditions. If she insisted on seeing Sarah, it was something that she could do later, but they'd use forensic methods for the moment. Still in shock, Sarah agreed. When Sean called to the house later that afternoon, it was to give the bad news that the body had in fact been confirmed as Sarah's. All the hope that the family had held onto was now gone. And so was Sarah. She wouldn't be coming home. Sarah wanted to go see her daughter, thinking she wouldn't be able to accept the news as real until she had seen Sarah herself. Sean said he didn't think it was a good idea, but this time Sarah was insistent. So Sean offered that he would go and see the body, and come back and describe her for Sarah. If she still wanted to see her daughter for herself after that, then he wouldn't stop her. The next day, Sarah, Mike, Terry and Les took the drive north to the field in Pulborough, where Sarah's body had been left. It was just a normal field off the main road, surrounded by hedgerow. The curb of the road was already covered in little tributes to Sarah, flowers and cards and teddies, all expressing sympathy. She'd been left well into the field, the area marked off with a police cordon. Press and public had been moved away from the site to give the family some privacy 
during this viewing. Later that afternoon, Sean returned to the home and described to the adults what he had seen when he visited Sarah's body at the morgue. She had been exposed to the elements and animals for some time, and he gently told Sarah and Mike that she no longer looked like a little girl. He said that he wished they wouldn't go see her, as he wouldn't want that to be their last memory of their daughter. The scene would certainly stay with him for the rest of his life, and he didn't want that for them. Slowly, Sarah's mum came round and agreed that she wouldn't request a visit. When the post-mortem was completed, Sarah's cause of death was determined as asphyxia, either due to strangulation or suffocation. More than that could not be said due to the advanced state of decomposition that the body had been found in. There was no obvious signs that the poor girl had been raped, but there was no way to rule out other types of sexual assault. Police told the Payne family that, in cases like these, where a prepubescent girl is abducted, she's likely dead within the first five hours of being missing. The family took some cold comfort in the fact that Sarah's ordeal had likely not lasted very long. Meanwhile, within days of getting the devastating news of their daughter's death, the police were fielding requests from papers and the media for interviews with the Paines. The couple weren't sure what to do. Mike was against it, but Sarah said that the media had helped them get the word out about Sarah and was more open to the idea. But the decision was easily made when the police said that it might be helpful if they were to do a further appeal for information and to try and catch whoever had abducted and murdered Sarah. That settled it. They would both go in front of the cameras again. This time, even Mike spoke passionately. Earlier on, he had found that he was unable to speak in front of the cameras for nerves. But now, though his grief and pain were apparent, he spoke forthrightly, asking for the public to help make sure that this didn't happen to someone else's little girl too. Luckily, days after Sarah's body was found, the chief suspect in her disappearance and now murder, Roy Whiting, found himself in police custody once more. He had moved from his flat and over to his father's house in Crawley in the wake of his questioning in relation to Sarah's disappearance, but he ended up leaving there too, after bricks were thrown through a window. Whiting then began sleeping rough. Shortly after this, Whiting stole a Vauxhall Nova car. He was seen changing its plates and then driving off, though his identity at the time was unknown. The police had been told only that a theft was occurring. A marked patrol car was sent to stop him, which resulted in a high-speed chase. At one point, Whiting reversed down a dual carriageway, travelling in the wrong direction at speed. In a documentary called The Murder of Sarah Payne, the police officer in pursuit described his behaviour as driving like an absolute maniac. In the show, video footage of the chase is shown, and you can clearly hear the tension in the policeman's voice as he attempts to follow Whiting's car and also describe the stolen car's manoeuvres to dispatch. Eventually, Whiting pulled over to a petrol station and jumped out of the car. He then ran off into adjoining fields, but his path was blocked by other police that had been sent to apprehend him and he was arrested. For this, Whiting went to jail for 22 months. Now the investigation into the murder of Sarah Payne could continue safe in the knowledge that the main suspect was behind bars for the moment, and that children were safe from him for now. That said, 
police were careful to keep an open mind about who in fact was responsible for Sarah's death, looking not only for evidence against Whiting, but also anything that led elsewhere, or in fact anything that might prove he hadn't been involved. But nothing they found led them to anyone but Whiting. Information about him began to trickle in. He had worked on Golden Avenue in Kingston, a short distance on foot from Peak Lane where Sarah had gone missing, and he had been known to walk his dog in the field behind Terry and Les's home. He was brought in for questioning again while in custody on the 31st of July, but he was once more uncooperative and replied no comment throughout, on advice of his solicitor. Privately, the Paynes were also planning a memorial service for Sarah. They had no idea when her body might be released to them, and so, in the meantime, they thought it right to have a service for her in order to focus their grief. They also decided to open the service to the public that had supported them so fully during the search for their missing daughter. It was scheduled for the 12th of August to take place in Guildford Cathedral, which was about halfway between Kingston and Pulborough and large enough to hold a few hundred people who would gather to remember Sarah and the short but joyful life she had lived. They would have a private funeral for the family only at a later date, whenever Sarah was released back to them. In the meantime, they went about organising her memorial, asking people who had actually known Sarah to speak during the service, rather than have a vicar do it. They also asked people to wear bright colours rather than mourning black, to reflect Sarah's bright personality. That Saturday in August, when the family arrived at the cathedral, they were surprised to find that there were near to a thousand people waiting to pay their respects. Along with friends, family and colleagues were members of the police force, people from Sarah's school, and hundreds and hundreds of people who were strangers to the family, but were compelled all the same by their story and by poor Sarah's fate to attend. After a moving service which consisted of people who knew and loved Sarah, who had tried to describe her essence to those gathered. The Paynes had opted to stay with Mike's parents in Kingston Gorse while the investigation was ongoing, and while Sarah's body lay in the mortuary in Sussex. But just after the memorial service, they got news that Sarah's body was going to be released to them for burial. They wanted this to happen back home, in their local church in Hersham, but they hadn't been back to the house on Arch Road. The place had been cleaned in the meantime, and all of Sarah's things had been carefully packed away, but the thoughts of returning to the house without her were nearly unbearable. Relatives rang the council in Surrey and explained the situation to them, who agreed to rehouse the pains in a new home. Again, relatives arranged the move so that Sarah and Mike needn't worry about it. Sarah's things were neatly put into boxes and labelled so that they wouldn't be opened in error and cause upset. The funeral was set to take place in St. Peter's Church on the 31st of August, with the family only arriving in their new home the night before. The next morning people began arriving and they walked in procession behind a horse-drawn hearse to the church. The streets were lined with local people out to pay their respects and the whole village more or less closed down. As the pains were mourning and trying to figure out how to continue on with their lives without little Sarah in it, the investigation into her abduction and murder continued. The police had Whiting behind bars, but they would need physical evidence to make a strong case against Whiting for Sarah's murder. 
the results of forensic testing of fibres found on Sarah's body and clothing began coming through in December of 2000. There were microscopic red fibres found in the Velcro of Sarah's shoe, which were identical to a red sweater found in Whiting's van. A blue fibre, again found on her shoe, matched a curtain that had been found in Whiting's van. More of the red fibres from the sweater were found in Sarah's hair, and more fibres found there matched a pair of socks in the van and the front seat cover. By the end of December, the 30 hairs found on the red sweater in question had been tested. Only one had contained DNA material, but that DNA was a 100% match to Sarah Payne. On the 6th of February 2001, Whiting was charged with kidnap and murder. Again, when questioned, he consistently responded, no comment. He appeared in Lou's Crown Court on the 19th of February. Sarah Payne's parents attended the hearing too. The court was crowded with press as usual, and extra police had been tasked in case there were protesters at the court given the nature of the crimes Whiting was charged with and the public outrage in its wake. Whiting's solicitor indicated that they were not entering an official plea at that time, but told the court that it was likely to be a not guilty plea and that they would be requesting time to prepare the defence case. Whiting was granted legal aid and was remanded in custody. He sat in court disinterested throughout, never looking at the Payne family and yawning when the judge adjourned the case. His affect was one of boredom and a lack of concern at the proceedings as a whole. It didn't look like he cared. Not even a little bit. Whiting's trial began on Tuesday the 13th of November 2001 in Lou's Crown Court. The first day was taken up by opening statements, but things quickly took a turn. One of the jurors was known to Les, Sarah Payne's grandmother. The woman was a girlfriend of someone Les worked with. The jury had to be discharged, and the whole thing had to start over. With the second jury seated, and after opening statements, the first witness for the Crown was Sarah Payne's mother. She had been excluded from the courtroom for the first few days of trial while the lawyers were setting up their cases, but after this she would be able to sit next to her husband and face Roy Whiting, the man accused of murdering her daughter. Sarah went through the events of the day that Sarah went missing. She then described her daughter for the court and identified a number of items that were presented as evidence. A blue sweatshirt, a quilted jacket, a photograph of Sarah's shoe. After sitting in the witness box, holding back tears for half an hour, Sarah left, staring down Whiting, while he refused to meet her eye. She cried outside in the hallway, but she had to pull herself together quickly. Her son Lee was giving evidence next by video link, and she needed to be in the court to support him. Though he wouldn't see her, he'd know she was there. Before that, though, the screens in the courtroom were used to show the police interviews that had been conducted with both Lee and Luke the day after Sarah went missing. The court heard from the boys about playing in the field, about Sarah getting hurt and running off, and Lee chasing after her, and his description of the man. 
when the screens flicked to him sitting in a room outside the courtroom, he was asked how far away he'd been from the van. But he was insistent he'd been quite close to the driver of the van and he'd seen him clearly, and his description was accurate, a scruffy man with greasy hair, wearing a red and black check shirt over a white one. Lee said he'd needed a shave and had very white-looking eyes. The family had, up until this point, been unable to talk to one another about this evidence, given that Sarah and Lee were going to be witnesses in the trial. With that duty over now, they'd be able to talk about their sister and daughter as they wished. But the family remained tense over the next few days. There was little relief now that they had finished giving their own evidence, as all of the forensic evidence was presented to the court. All the fibre evidence, from collection to testing, was presented, tying Sarah to the van and whiting, and whiting to the van and the body of Sarah Payne. A police archaeologist gave evidence about the place that Sarah's body had been found. She had been placed naked into a shallow grave in a field, a few metres from the roadside. The archaeologist told the court that the small hole could have been dug in less than five minutes. A worker at the farm also took the stand to describe discovering Sarah's body in the field, and the rope, shovel and zip ties were presented to the court as evidence after they were found in the cab of Whiting's van. Men who had worked with Whiting told the court that they knew him to be a quiet man, a loner with few friends, and a friend who'd run into him the weekend that Sarah was taken said he'd been surprised to find his usually grubby and dirty friend looked as if he'd been quote-unquote steam-cleaned that day. A police doctor also described three small, fresh-looking scratches that he observed on Whiting after his initial arrest in July of 2000. They were on his chest and arm, and Whiting had not been able to explain where they came from. He'd later tell the police he hadn't even noticed them. During the course of the police investigation, they'd received a hundred messages per day, which they then had to sort through. Amongst all this, there was one significant find. Deborah Bray lived three miles from the field where Sarah was ultimately found. She was driving home two days after Sarah's disappearance when she saw a child's shoe in the middle of the road. It was a strange sight as the shoe looked to be brand new. She thought maybe some little girl had thrown it from a car window. She told the court that this shoe had sat in the road for a number of days. She had seen it a few times as she drove by, and then it seemed to have disappeared. Deborah assumed it had been picked up by its owner but then she heard about the discovery of Sarah's body. She knew that the field was nearby, and so she rang the police. They asked Deborah to go and check the road to see if she could find it. She parked her car and went walking along the edge of the road, checking the grass verges and the hedgerows for any sign of the shoe. Eventually, Deborah found the shiny black girl's sandal with a Velcro strap. She carefully picked it up, trying her best not to touch it any more than she had to, and put it in her car after which she drove straight to the police station with it. It was in fact Sarah's shoe, and the Velcro strap had contained all of those fibres. The Crown case culminated with the evidence of Vesna Jirovic, the pathologist who had performed Sarah's autopsy. She dispassionately presented her evidence regarding the disposal of Sarah's body and the condition it had been found in. The details were too much for the pains, 
who had to leave the courtroom as Dr. Jerovic described her findings. She said that Sarah Payne had had a violent death caused by asphyxia during the course of a sexually motivated crime. Forensics made up the majority of the Crown's case against Whiting, and so once the pathologist was finished delivering her findings, the Crown turned the case over to the defence. And so, on Tuesday the 4th of December, Roy Whiting took to the stand. His lawyer questioned him quickly, asking him to run through his movements on the day Sarah disappeared. He told the court that he'd spent the day driving around. He'd gone to three parks, a lake, a funfair, and the beach. He said he'd been bored and wanted time on his own to think. He had a lot on his mind. He was contemplating either moving house or changing his job, and he wanted to mull it over, he said. He outright denied having any contact with Sarah Payne. He said he'd had nothing whatsoever to do with the girl or her disappearance and death. The next day would be less straightforward. His cross-examination was thorough and pointed. Why had Whiting not given a full account of his day when asked by the police if he was innocent? When Whiting said he didn't think he'd be believed, Timothy Langdale for the Crown outright accused him of killing Sarah Payne. Whiting insisted that that's why he couldn't have been transparent with the police. And Langdale retorted that he was actually attempting to cover up his crime. In fact, Whiting had initially told the police he'd gotten back to his flat by eight, but he'd later been presented with a receipt from a petrol station ten miles to the north of the route he'd told police that he'd taken home from Brighton that evening. When Langdale asked him directly why, when Whiting was questioned on his whereabouts that night, he hadn't told police that he'd been miles from the area Sarah was abducted from, and he had a receipt to prove it, Whiting said he had no answer for that. Langdale then pointed out that the location of the Buckbarn garage was in fact quite near to Pulborough, where Sarah's body had been found, and this put Whiting there close to ten o'clock, much later than he'd admitted being away from home that night. It was incriminating, and that's why he hadn't said anything when police had shown the receipt to them during the interview, weeks before Sarah's body had been found. He'd known where she was before the police did and therefore he'd known that the receipt was significant for that reason. Whiting was adamant that he'd made changes to the inside of the van the morning before Sarah went missing, saying he'd stripped out the plywood panelling, changed the back doors and power washed the interior before Sarah had been abducted, rather than the morning after. The Crown maintained that he had in fact done all this after in an attempt to cover up his crime. When each piece of evidence was put to him, Whiting maintained it was an unfortunate coincidence that pointed towards him. He had no real defence or explanation for the matching fibres, the suspicious contents of his van, why he was in Peak Lane that evening, the similarity he himself bore to the man seen by Lee Payne, or the fact that he'd attempted to get rid of doors and internal flooring in his van that very weekend. He vehemently denied that he'd been out prowling for a girl to snatch, He'd gone to places where you'd be likely to find kids, parks, the beach, even a fun fair. And with that, Whiting's defence concluded, and the jury were sent out to deliberate. They deliberated for eight hours and forty minutes over three days before returning with their verdict. They found Roy Whiting guilty of the murder of Sarah Payne. 
With that done, Mr Langdale was finally able to tell the court, and more importantly the jury, about Whiting's previous conviction for kidnap and sexual assault. That girl's parents had sat in the crowd of the courtroom to see the man who had hurt their daughter put back behind bars where he belonged. In sentencing, the judge turned to Whiting and said, quote, You are indeed an evil man. You were in no way mentally unwell. I have seen you for a month, and in my view, you were a glib and cunning liar. I have a psychiatrist's report which assists me, and a psychiatrist who saw you in June 1995 said you are a high-risk repeat offender. How right he was. My judgment is that you are, and will remain, an absolute menace to any little girl. End quote. The mandatory life sentence was handed down with a recommendation for Whiting to serve a full life tariff. As Whiting was led from the courtroom, Terry Payne, Sarah's grandfather, shouted at him, quote, I hope you rot, and Mike cursed at him. Home Secretary David Blunkett ordered that Whiting must serve a minimum of 50 years. But just shortly after this, the European Court of Human Rights handed down a ruling that would affect how its signatory countries handled life sentences such as these. The ECHR and its court are completely separate entities from the European Union, which has its own courts of justice. The European Convention on Human Rights was formed in 1959 under the Council of Europe and today has 47 party states to the convention. Cases are taken by individuals against a party state that is alleged to have breached the various rights contained in the convention document itself, and after all other legal routes within that state have been exhausted. In this case, Anderson versus the UK, it was found by the ECHR judges that politicians making a final decision on the minimum tariff a convicted person might serve infringed upon their rights. This ruling resulted in Whiting applying to the Court of Appeal and having a new minimum tariff set by a judge of that court. His new minimum sentence was 40 years. He will not be considered for possible release until 2041, when he will be 82 years old. Roy Whiting now spends his days in prison building intricate models from matchsticks, and though he tries to keep himself to himself, he remains a target inside. He's been attacked at least three times so far. In 2001, he was slashed by a razor by another inmate. Then, in 2002, he was stabbed in the eye with a sharpened toilet brush. In early 2019, he was beaten with a flask by another inmate. There are reports he is now pursuing legal action against the prison authorities in the UK because of these attacks. He says that he is a quote-unquote marked man and is looking for compensation for the injuries he has suffered. He claims to be fearful of his life and describes himself as a dead man walking. If he was to win his suit and be awarded compensation, it would mean that he wouldn't need to work in prison and would not have to leave his cell, making it harder for the other inmates to get at him. Michael and Sarah Payne presented a united front in the wake of their daughter's death and Whiting's trial, as Sarah continued her campaign to allow parents access to information about violent sexual child predators living in their areas. But behind closed doors, things weren't going well. Despite the fact that the couple went on to have another child, a baby girl, a few years after Sarah's death, their relationship was strained. Michael's mental health was failing, 
and both of them took to drinking to cope with the pain of losing their eldest daughter. The couple eventually split up. Sarah's siblings, now grown up, some of them with families of their own, spoke about their guilt over what had happened to Sarah. They all felt somehow responsible for her abduction and have spent years trying to work through that guilt. Sarah Payne's details were found in notes kept by Glenn Mulcair, the private investigator employed by the News of the World whose methods sparked the phone hacking scandal in the UK, which resulted in the Levison report and the closure of that paper. Rebecca Brooks, who would appear daily on TV screens during the inquiry, was counted as a close friend by Ms Payne, who said that News of the World had in fact supplied Sarah with her mobile phone for 11 years in order to help her coordinate the campaign for Sarah's Law. Sarah was close to the team at News of the World, and Rebecca Brooks called her a quote-unquote dear friend. In fact, when the paper wound up, Sarah wrote a farewell column in the final edition of the paper, thanking the team for all their help over the years and saying that she had become friends with the staff there. Sarah Payne was made an MBE for Services to Child Protection in 2008. Her efforts to have disclosure of paedophiles' names to concerned parents was successful, and in 2011 the disclosure scheme was rolled out. Parents now had the right to go to their local police station and get information about people in their neighbourhood on the sex offenders list if they had contact with children. Though this scheme has come under criticism for not going far enough, and conversely, for going too far for too little benefit to the public. It's not as all-encompassing as Megan's Law in the US, and police only give out information in circumstances where one, it's requested, and two, it's deemed appropriate. Those who campaigned for Sarah's Law say that this doesn't go far enough to protect children living in an area where there's a dangerous sex offender living. On the other hand, advocates for offenders say that there are already child safeguarding frameworks in existence, and making information like this available to the public is of limited value and is not a particularly effective way of making sure kids are safe, given that it can make people targets of vigilante violence. John Brown of the National Society of Prevention for Cruelty to Children in the UK said, quote, Sarah's law is not a silver bullet to end child abuse, and giving the public information about where sex offenders live is just one part of the jigsaw. Informing the public of their whereabouts has to be done properly, professionally, and judged on a case-by-case basis. Forcing a child abuser underground because of fear of vigilante attacks won't make children safer, as the authorities lose track of them. End quote. It's a balancing act. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. You'll make my day. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Anya Corbett, Amy Doherty, Glenda Hayes, Louise O'Hare and Nathan Flood. Thanks so much for your support, guys. Patrons get exclusive Mens Rea bonus episodes, a monthly court roundup called In Brief, and extra stories in the form of guilt trips. There's also merch and my undying love, so check it out. 
Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Sarah Payne. Sarah Payne. Sarah Payne. Sarah Payne. Sarah Payne. Sarah Payne. Police, particularly... If you're looking for something different, Murder Mile covers the untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders in London's West End. It's researched using the original police investigation files... It's presented as a dramatisation, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed and sympathetic way. Murder Mile is about life, not lunatics. So if you love true crime stories about real murders by regular people in everyday places, then Murder Mile is just for you. Murder Mile was nominated one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, So if you love things a little bit different, try Murder Mile.